This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls, you can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite. And you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the, over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword Metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. I have a special guest, Adam Singer, the VP of marketing at Lex Markets. Adam is prolific on Twitter. I think he's over 70,000 followers at this point and tweets about all things tech, um, big tech, investing, marketing, and even uh, some cool music stuff that he's doing. So this conversation is going to go all over the place. We're going to talk about what it's like living in Austin, uh, Adam's days at Google, what he thinks about technology investing, and what he's doing at Lex Markets. So we've got a lot to cover. So Adam, let's dive right in. For those that don't know who you are, which I would consider myself in that bucket a little bit. I mean, I did some research on you, but who are you and uh, what do you do for a living? Sure. So I have been a marketing professional um, working on everything from more recently uh, genomics and SaaS companies and, and technology. Um, and when I started my career, I was very into consumer QSRs. I, I actually brought... Um, International Dairy Queen was the first quick serve restaurant to reach a million member Facebook page. I had to push that Berkshire Hathaway company into social um, way back when, like 2007, 2008. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been a marketer my whole career. Before that, um, you know, I've been a part of web forums since the 90s. Um, I used to, I built a pretty popular Quake form. For those who don't know, Quake was like one of the first first person shooters um, on the web that gained popularity um, and really was one of the first games I think online that formed like real community behind the game. And that, that a lot of kids don't know today if you play online games, it's because of games like Quake, games like Warcraft. Anyway, 
um, I, I was a nerd in college. And when I got, um, when I got out of college, I realized, Hey, most companies aren't doing anything as well as they could be with technology, with the internet. So, um, as I started working online, the, the reason you probably know me from Twitter, I started one of the first marketing blogs about how to do digital marketing, how to do uh, community building online, how to properly do online advertising. And um, yeah, the only reason I have 70,000 followers or whatever on Twitter is um, I was a blogger for like one of the first online marketing bloggers for like 12 years. I sold the site and now I just am a pundit and comment on things online. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good to talk to you, Brendan. Um, I love your tweets as well. Your conversation with a friend of mine, um, Dan, Dan McCurdy went awesome. He's so smart. He's very thought provoking. He has in-depth meta takes on everything. I, I, I loved it. So yeah, Dan, I mean, Dan was just like one of those toys that you wind up and let go for three hours. <laughs> made, I know right? he, made, he made my life pretty easy. You, you said that you were kind of a nerd and loved video games and all that when did that start and maybe what was the what was the um you know like dawn of of that video game fascination like was it from early childhood was it just a way to kind of socialize with friends where did that begin um yeah I mean I think that so my father passed away when I was like pretty young when I was 12 13 years old and I was an introvert growing up um I, you mentioned music. I, I still play music now, but I actually found community online in the late nineties through, you know, through some video games, which was kind of cool. We actually, we used to, um, someone on Twitter, and there, there was a news story they linked about like, um, China banning games for kids. Yeah. And I thought that was like a weird thing because from playing video games as a child, um, I learned how to build lands, local area networks. I learned how to build a web form for our game. Um, I learned how to um, do some basic game and level design. I used to build my own Quake levels. And so it's for really interested, curious people, it, it's not so much that a video game is a waste of time. It's that video game becomes a vehicle for all these other things, right? So we, we tend to think in such binary terms, oh, it's a waste of time, it's a video game, right? But it, it, it probably isn't for, for, for the right people. So um, yeah, I, I got into video games in my teens because I was an introvert and a nerd. And um, you know, I played them throughout college. Actually in college I, and in high school, I used to work um, in a restaurant. And when I got into college and I built my game form, um, I realized, oh, wait, I could make money from running ads on my form. And at one point, my form was making more money in like a week than I would make at a month in my day job. And it kind of clicked for me. And then I, yeah. I quit my day job and just ran um, my online communities and made money from some back in the day. It was pretty easy to make AdSense powered sites. AdSense is Google's uh, site monetization tool. And so, yeah, it was that that was also a little bit prelude for me to get into digital marketing and, and the internet economy. Well, one more, one more comment on this, cause it's really funny. Um, when I was, when I was a teenager, I had expressed interest to my parents to go to computer camp. I was really into computers, coding, all this stuff. And they said, no, you're in front of your computer too much. We're going to send you to sports camp. And so hopefully because of that, I'm a more balanced individual, but on the other hand, I would, I would assume like the Mark Zuckerberg parents of the world did send their kids 
to computer camp. And so I think it's interesting because, you know, getting to talk about video games or computers or things like we don't know what kids are doing today that might be really valuable tomorrow. I think yeah. another good example of this is uh, YouTube. Um, have you heard of Mr. Beast? Oh, yeah, he's incredible. I mean, I've never like watched his videos, but I, I definitely know he made like those ghost kitchens and sold out all those burgers or something like that. Totally. And you don't even have to watch his videos. It's not the point. But he was in high school and was so obsessed with YouTube. And people were telling him, and his parents were even telling him, why are you wasting your time with this shit? Like, what are you doing? And he is now like the, I think he's the 11th most popular uh, YouTuber. He spends 48 million a year, I think. I, I just watched an interview with him making videos. He obviously, you know, he, like he got to a point where his videos, he has tons of sponsorship. He, per video, he's making like 600K, like on That's just insane. Ad, ad That's company. insane. Right. Yeah. And so it's funny how we think, you know, uh, like parents tend to think, um, oh, this is a waste of time. And they like, I, I think as, as, um, as you know, you and me are elder millennials, um, like you should look to youth and, and look at what they're doing with a little bit of an open mind. Now, I'm not saying everyone is going to be an awesome entrepreneur and become a top 10 YouTuber, but I think like the key to it is find these things that young people enjoy doing and see if you can help them figure out a path from that to, okay, here's something that the world will value in the future. And it might not be something that the world valued in the past. Like, it's not like Mr. B's parents knew what the hell YouTube was, right? But that doesn't mean there's not something there. And they they could have, you know, I'm, I'm sure they did, they did nurture him. I've watched some of the videos, but mm -hmm. um, it's not always apparent what those things are. An interesting thought exercise would be to invert that question and then ask, what are some things that kids are doing today that you don't think will be relevant in the future? And then maybe like, trying to nip those things in the bud early so that people can focus on things that are valuable. I mean, do you, do you think that's even a thoughtful exercise? Because it's so, I mean, it's so unknown, right? Like there's also survivorship bias built in where totally. you know, some, you know, Mr. Beast could have been working on YouTube for years and not have known that YouTube was going to be this tremendously successful platform. Yeah. I think it all comes down to, um, to the use of products and platforms. So, um, you know, I, I think a good example today is probably Instagram and to some extent, Snapchat and TikTok, wherein most, a lot of it is consumption. A lot of it, especially for young people, forces them from a young age to already start to do the uh, comparison thing where you compare yourself to others. And we know that's a recipe for disaster. You learn that yeah. as an adult. You don't, you compare yourself to yourself yesterday, not to everyone else, you're always going to be miserable. But when you start to do that to young people early on, it's not necessarily a good thing. And they get hooked on the, I hate this phrase, but there's not a better way to say it, but the, the like slot machine, dopamine engagement machine online. I actually think it's more complex than that. Um, but I think you could have seen that behavior in probably us in the nineties, wherein I think if you were just chatting on AOL forums and just, you know, that, that was the extent of your use of social media, or um, you were just, you know, playing single player games on your computer, you weren't necessarily like, looking at, you know, the code of the game, you weren't trying to, you know, build your own uh, levels in a game, or you weren't, you know, 
connecting with friends to make it this community thing. I think you can see the behavior um, and if it's productive. And this isn't just, you know, this doesn't just apply to computers, right? I think you can see this um, in pretty much anything and how and in, in how kids interact. Um, you know, I, I think like when I was a kid, even before computers, I, I had a friend who was really into chess, right? And he wasn't just he, he was clearly passionate about it. He wasn't just playing like casual games. He wanted to read, you know, all of the chess opening books. He wanted to understand all of the, um, you know, strategies in the history. And so I think like the, it, it's, it's a clear difference between engaging with something at a surface level versus making it, you know, something that you're, that you're generally genuinely interested in. And I think that's really important because, okay. So as an adult, now you've heard of the, and you've seen a lot of the people who are like, the doomer meme online, right? They're like, nothing matters. Everything is bullshit. Yeah, everything's always been bullshit. You're not treading new grounds here. Um, you know, read a philosophy book. People have figured this out in the past. But when you can, when you can have people develop interests from a young age, like th there's always something interesting for them. They're not going to get to this point where they're like, nothing matters. You know, I I'm going to, you know, become this whether it's a financial nihilist YOLOing into meme stocks or, you know, someone looking at geopolitical issues or someone looking at, you know, climate change or whatever's on the horizon. There's always, you know, the, the, there's always something to be concerned about and there always has been and there always will be. So um, you can't let that necessarily impact, you know, your own life every day. Of course, you should work to make those things better, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of things you can't control at any moment. So I think the, the people who as kids were sort of at least, nurtured a little bit to, to to find interest now as adults are generally not like the, the doomer type mm -hmm. and it got me it got me thinking of this analogy and the only reason i'm thinking of this analogy is because my fiance and i were discussing this movie yesterday um it seems like these internet platforms because you mentioned like there's an element of social status and kind of competition on these online platforms that wasn't there when it was just hey like let's hop on aol aim and there might be people that don't know what that is, but it's just basically like a text-based thing in AOL and, um, or, or, or those forums or those like single player games online. And I kind of view that as like this sandbox where you're in kindergarten or elementary school and a bunch of people are in the sandbox and they're not trying to compete. They're just trying to like build with each other and like see what they can create. And then over time, what these platforms become is like an episode or a scene from Mean Girls the movie where everybody's got their own tables and now it's like all based on social status. And it's like, Oh, well, if you're sitting here, then you're part of this community and you can only sit here if you wear this and have this and come from this background. And, you know, I just, yeah, it's antithetical if... to what the internet used to be where those things right. didn't matter. It, it seems like what you're saying is um, I, I think true. And if you listen to some hate lectures from uh, Jonathan Haidt, who does research on young people and sociology and societal trends. He says a lot of the same things too. It almost seems like we've replicated some of the worst things from the physical world into the digital world. And maybe that wasn't the case in the nineties because it was, it was still too new. It was like all the weirdos, all of the, the early adopters, all of the people who, you know, maybe were a little bit more introverted and, you know, it's not like there were, it's not like we had all of these people, um, thrown into a sort of engagement war where they and where the media also sort of ends up playing them for whatever, you know, political side they know will generate controversy and engagement, right? So um, it's totally different world. And I, I think like the platforms are, 
somewhat culpable because they've the incentives are different for that to be the case. It wasn't they didn't, they didn't have the same incentives uh, for creating engagement before. I think probably some product managers had engagement, quote unquote, mm-hmm. as an OKR objective key result. But I think it was probably more like in AOL days, they just wanted to keep you on because they were billing you per the hour. Yep. So it was more like online time was probably the 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 thing being optimized against, not so much you know your number of engagements with other people. So yeah. At what point did you join Google and then what was, what was your, what was your role there and, and, and how was your time there? Yeah, I joined Google. I, th- I want to say 2012, somewhere around there. Um, I was in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco for a, uh, to, to lead digital for a global consultancy called Lewis, about 300 people. And I was there for, I really liked them. I was sad to leave. I was there for like almost two years. And then a friend of mine, Louis Gray, um, referred me into Google. And I said to my consultancy, I actually really like you guys. I don't, I never wanted to go to a big tech firm. And I'm like, here's the number. Can you guys just beat this? And they're like, we, we just can't. So, um, you know, your, your, your compensation as a consultant has a ceiling, whereas the tech companies have a little bit of an unfair advantage because of their model, right? Like they're, they're making so much more money, whereas consultancies aren't making money on software. They're making money on people. Yep. Um, so yeah, I went over to do marketing on Google analytics. The only reason I was even willing to join them is I'd used Google analytics, um, since the early days of the product, um, since almost like, um, post acquisition, Google bought a company called urchin turned it into Google analytics. I was an early user of that product. I was like, Oh, cool. I get to work on the product that every other marketer uses. So like, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, meta software for, for my sector and, um, yeah, it was, it was a cool experience after, um, two years there, I was, so I was on the marketing team for two years. Um, Google, Google is interesting on the business side. So on the marketing side, they tend to put X salespeople and salespeople are not marketers. They're just not. And so I got a little bit frustrated after two years there and, um, our VP hired me and I said, Hey, I don't really want to work with these people anymore. And um, he's like, well, we don't want to lose you. What do you want to do? And I'm like, well, let me go sit with product. And we had had at that point, like four developer advocates, quote unquote, these are roles where if you're a developer on um, any sort of web platform or analytics platform or ad platform, like they would help you build your product on top of analytics and AdWords. And we had like four developer advocates and we had no analytics advocates and we had, you know, probably a hundred X more actual analysts and marketers using the product. So, um, I got to be analytics advocate. Number one, eventually I built a case for more. We grew to four analytics advocates, um, speaking at conferences, talking with advertisers and users. Um, I got to, that was a fun role because I got to not only sit with the product team and when they were working on PRDs, I would get to look at it and be like, okay, guys, this is fun. But if you build it this way, it will actually be useful for marketers because a lot of times the product managers and engineers had never actually run a marketing campaign. It was, it's typical in software, right? They're just Mm -hmm. given design specs or been like, Hey, what could we do? And so I got to be like the voice of the customer in the room. And then at the same time, I got to talk with um, I've been a consultant my whole career prior. I got to talk with like the leadership teams at, 
you know, Pfizer at booking.com. They were like one of the largest spenders. Uh, they spent like a hundred million in Google ads um, every year. And yeah, crazy, crazy numbers. And the ROI is there, right? Um, and so it, that, that was a fun role. I also got to be a, a voice for Google in the industry. Um, I wrote a column for like six years at a site called ClickZ. Um, got to travel around the world and speak at events everywhere from um, you know, New York and Silicon Valley to London, uh, to Italy, to um, South America. I mean, it, it, it was a cool role. Um, the only reason I decided to leave is, um, you know, after almost, you know, I think eight years there, that's a, that's a long time in millennial years. I'm also super ADHD. And yeah. I feel like if, if I'm going to work for someone else, I need to be like learning or else it's, it's not really worth it. And so, um, yeah, I wanted to do something else. I did some investments in some other sectors because I was, I, I, I couldn't buy a lot of the SaaS and ad tech names I wanted um, because I had of like disclosures and stuff like that. With, yeah, yeah, with yeah. Google. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did a lot of, I, I did a bit of life science investing and I wanted to, I decided after enough years in ad tech, I wanted to go do something else. So, so what type of investments were you making? Were they public, private or? And then, and then you, 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 you mentioned life sciences and at, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned you were passionate about genomics and stuff like that. So was it, was it centered around genomics and, and some technology there? Yeah. Um, so I went after Google and I worked at a company called Invite. They're a medical genomics public, company. Right? They are public. Um, and they are basically, um, the difference between them and a 23andMe is the resolution of the test. So if you get a positive result from a 23andMe, you still have to go get a medical grade genomics test from Invitae. And so the 23andMe test, you can think about it as, imagine you copy a JPEG over like a hundred times and it's like pretty blurry, right? That's what their tests look like. And then the Invitae test is the full resolution. You can see the JPEG clearly. And then the other thing that the medical genomics firm does is um, if you if you do get a positive result, they will actually run it in a different machine uh, to confirm that result. And so the other thing they do is if you do, example, you had a positive BRCA test, right? Um, they would actually have a genomics counselor who's qualified call you and walk you through the next steps, unless your MD ordered the test, in which case you're, you're your doctor would call you. So to get the genomics test, you actually would get proper consult. Um, I think 23andMe might have started doing a little bit of that, but um, the one thing that 23andMe did, which is great, is they sort of built the awareness of genetic testing. So that was always a great thing for Invite and for you know um, any of the other smaller players. Invite is not small anymore. When I joined, they were like like maybe 1.5 billion. Now they're like a I think they're like a seven billion dollar company. Um, they like 23andMe because they were, um, you know, they, they were venture funded early. They had a ton of advertising spend. They were, they were for consumer directly at the start and Invite went the clinician route. And yep. the other thing Invite did on the clinician side, which is very cool, um, is they ran the Amazon playbook on genomics. So previously, if you had to, you, you were at Stanford Oncology and you had to, um, you know, they ordered a genomic screen. Um, you would have to go to a company called uh, Myriad Genomics and they would charge you several, like several thousand dollars for your test, right? Huh. 
And Invite is like, this is ridiculous. It's price gouging. We're going to run the Amazon playbook. We're going to just get everything as cheap as possible, make it up in volume. And it's like, you want, you want like the capitalism machine working on healthcare because when yep. that happens, prices go down. You don't want the restrictive, you know, sort of old guard, um, middleman machine running. You want, you want the ruthless, you know, Bezos machine, you know, the, the flywheel, right. They, everyone seen the Amazon flywheel. So we had that actually in Vitae, we had like the, you know, the whole cogs flywheel and everything. And I think we got tests down from when I started, it was like 500 there to like under a hundred for some of the wow. screens for the, the medical grade tests. Um, and you asked why I was interested in this. I actually had some oncology issues. Uh, I was at Stanford oncology. They are great. And so, you know, when I was sick and I was going through surgery and then I had uh, procedures afterward, I was like, Hey, th this stuff, th the gravity of this seems more important than hmm. a lot of the technology things. So for me, you know, it was, I had been doing tech and consumer and I felt like, you know, my, my parents were MDs, you know, I come from, from that background a little bit. Yeah. And so it, it felt better to, even though, you know, life science investing is harder. I, I think that um, I, it's a shame that we have all these talks about like, or not, not all these talks, but all of this sort of political ill will about um, drug development when, you know, new therapeutics actually save money in the system by keeping people healthy and out of hospitals. Right. And all of the investment there is, um, it's, it's harder than tech. I mean, if you just wanted to make money, buy QQQ and chill, don't, don't try to screw with any life science companies because yep. a lot of them are going to end up being zeros. And so you have to invest in that space because you legitimately believe in the science, the team, you know, what they're doing for the system. And um, what worries me is over time, there will be fewer and fewer people who want to invest in that space when it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a really hard space and we keep putting up more barriers and, um, if you want to read a great letter uh, by the RA Capital team, uh, Peter, I can't say his last name, um, he has a great book called um, The Great American Drug Deal, but he also has a, a letter he wrote to Congress, which I think they listened to, about why they shouldn't regulate drug prices in the way that they were thinking. Mm -hmm. Drug prices should be regulated, but not how that legislation was drafted. I don't want to get into policy. I am not a policy wonk, but... It's, it's really interesting to read all these things. Yeah. Life sciences, it sounds to most investors like a major leap in circle of competence expansion. So for instance, like I know I've shied away from life sciences in most part because I don't think I understand it at all. Part of that's because I haven't tried to understand it in, 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 in fairness. So when you were looking at these companies say it's a say it's invade t you know nv nvta or whatever um what were what were some of the biggest hurdles you had to kind of get over personally from a knowledge base like okay trying to figure out the one to three most important things about this industry or about this business before you can understand it right because there's always like one to three main drivers for an investment yeah. and I'm, I'm i'm wondering if there's any like themes or parallels in life sciences where you can apply like these big drivers across multiple companies? Yeah. Um, so for me, it wasn't that hard of a leap in that I had been working on analytics products for a number of years. And so 
to be able to invest in a drug company. Um, I, I, what I couldn't do was a really early stage and understanding, you know, specific molecules and pathways of action that's beyond my pay grade, yeah. but sort of post phase two, phase three trials, understanding something like viral knockdown or clinical response or, you know, remission rates, right. There's just P values. And so, you know, if, if, if you can, it, me as a, as a analyst, um, being able to understand, you know, cohort analysis of, you know, we ran a special for, um, you know, Valentine's Day for 1-800-Flowers or whatever. And, you know, did that cohort go on and make purchases later? Like that analysis work isn't any different than looking at things like viral knockdown. And in mm -hmm. fact, what's really interesting is that all of the, all of the, um, all of the lab data is very pristine, it's clinical. And all of the web data is very messy. And mm -hmm. so in some ways, as in like doing actual analyst work and, and looking at just raw numbers and percentages, my dog might bark in a second, there's someone coming to my door, um, it is, is actually a little bit easier than, there goes my dog. Right on it's a little bit easier. <laughs> it's a little bit, not, not easier per se, but, um, you know, you're as long as the the management team aren't bullshit artists and that data is verifiable, um, it's 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 not necessarily too hard. The other thing is that um, for Invite, I actually met with the management team like before, like I invested in them, but before I even worked there, like I just emailed uh, like someone who worked there and I'm like, do you want to get coffee? And yeah. um, I just had coffee with them and got to know them and I got like a lab tour and everything. And they were just super nice. And I think that's a little bit of the Bay Area culture. The Bay Area startup culture is very much, you could email pretty much anyone at any startup. They'll say yes to coffee with you, can learn about their company. That's um, very much in the culture there. When, when I first moved to Bay Area, they used to do something called a startup crawl where, hmm. and, and this was totally a recruitment exercise where on like a Tuesday night, um, like five or six startups in Soma, uh, South of Market Street in, in San Francisco would have a keg of beer and you'd go from one to the next, you'd get like a pitch about the company. You'd have a beer or two, there'd be like their executive team or their product team there. And um, actually, at one point, a company called Zarly decided to sponsor the crawl, and it was called the Zarly Crawl for a little while. Anyway, um, yeah, every, I, I think that's, that is one of the cool parts of uh, the West Coast startup culture. I think I, I've seen the East Coast um, biotech startup culture, and you kind of have to already know someone and be in there a little bit. Um, they're very nice. I think if you can network your way, in, it's, it's, it's great. But I found the, the West Coast people are even more open. And I would suggest if you're curious about um, one company or just get to know one company really well, Yeah, the smaller, the better. And the interesting thing is, so all of these research analysts, what do they do? They're just covering FANG. Like they don't cover these small companies. And so it got to a point for me, you know, I'd listen to conference calls of um, not just even biotech, but just small cap companies. And I would listen to the analyst questions. I'd be like, holy shit, this guy has spent five minutes looking at this company before the call. They have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. They're just completely on a different planet. And so um, that was really the, the life science space and the small cap space. Look, I wrong plenty of times too. I'm sure I'll be dragged on Twitter for even mentioning um, certain things which you won't, but I've like written posts on like, here's why I was wrong, I'm sorry. Um, 
I'm, I'm not an analyst for anything. I'm not a financial advisor, so don't listen to me. But um, yeah, I, I think like that was one of the only areas where I legitimately felt that I, I had a little bit of an edge. I, I guess the easier way to do investing is just to buy FANG and you don't need an edge and you can just compound and who cares. But, um, you know, Brandon, you're, you're like me, you're a little ADHD. You like to do the work and dive in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a little bit at the beginning of this call about like passion and being interested in things. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like if, if I was just going to like buy the same things as everyone else, I would just, you know, buy spy and chill and never even, yep. or Q or whatever. But if I'm going to look at companies, like I want to genuinely be genuinely be interested in these things. And look, I'm not doing finance professionally. Um, this is like my fun money to play with. So um, it's not like I have accountability to anyone else. If you're actually running other people's money, you do. But if you're an individual investor, put some, you know, money aside, they're willing to lose. And it's, it's, it's a fun thing. Um, the other thing with life science is that, so it's probably one of the only sectors where I've, and you, this isn't, re, this isn't always replicable, but you can make a lot just by looking at what happened. So I owned a bunch of shares in a company called Kite Pharma a while ago. They were one of the best CAR T players. CAR T is an immunotherapy, basically remove your own cells, re-engineer them to be like a heat seeking missile for, for cancer. They started with um, blood tumors. They were getting, you know, complete responses in patient populations that were previously a death sentence. They were getting like complete remission. It was incredible. And um, yeah, they, I, I found them when they were trading at like 20 or 30 a share and they got bought out for like 170. And sure. it was like right there on display, but everyone's following all the tech names. So a lot of times there can be great data in something and it's, the, the other thing is when they were bought out, I'm like, oh, well, I bet you Juno might get bought out because they were the only other CAR-T player. So I just bought some shares of them and I made like 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 120% or whatever, some stupid amount in like yeah. two weeks on it. So I that, that, that doesn't really happen in tech. You don't see like some company get bought and then the competitor get bought like a week later. Yeah. Um, but in, in biopharma, that can happen. So um, yeah, I, I think especially... I think especially now, again, this is not financial advice, but I have some positions that are down like, you know, 40, 50% year to date uh, for two reasons. One is commercial stage launches in a pandemic are really hard. And then the other is um, it's hard to run trials in a pandemic. Are you really going to uh, be a part of a clinical trial when, you know, there's a pandemic out there? Probably not. You're, you're probably not going to go for, unless it's like something really life-threatening, you probably don't want anything to do with that. Yep. So that combined with the fact that everyone is just all the hot money is trading meme stocks and crypto and tech. Like I actually, there's probably like no retail left in most of these life science names. So again, you know, another trade I did well in, um, I didn't hold long enough because I don't know the sector, but um, I bought a bunch of um, oil companies, oil of all things. I have no clue what I'm doing, but pre pre Obama or not pre Obama, pre Biden. Cause I'm like, you know what? Everything is just too sold off here. Like I got some shares in this small company, SM. They're like a 120 year old um, oil driller. I, th- I think they're an oil driller. I barely even looked at it, but they were like a, they were like a 10 X from when I bought, I sold before that. But um, I, I think like biotech now is like, it, it feels like when I, I was buying these energy names when they were completely out of favor. And that's what you want to look for. Um, like I actually had seen, um, in, in, in my Twitter feed, I had seen like this one crypto trader who's really smart, who was just buying all of these like 
buying all of these home improvement names in the peak of the pandemic. I'm like, wait, this guy's buying home improvement names. He's just some crypto yes. trader, but he was the one crypto trader. Who's like, here's what's going on in the world. And he pattern matches something else. And you, you love to see it. You love to see the kids like seeing there's more than one sector. There's more than, you know, one thing you can trade. Um, anyway, some observations. That's it's actually funny. You mention oil and, and, and energy because I'm in the process of, trying to dive into some of these names and, and find, you know, some great, great chart setups and just kind of some great fundamentals to take a swing in the space. Because again, and this, this, this gets into kind of the ESG thing, but oil has, I mean, oil, oil's kind of like the new tobacco, right? Everybody hates it. Everybody thinks it's terrible. Um, and yet people still consume it now you know, I don't, that's, that, that's probably the depth of my knowledge at that point, but it is interesting when you get into this ESG thing where because of the underinvestment in oil and energy, the prices for such things have now skyrocketed and we need those things in order to build the renewables. So it's like this weird catch 22 where you've got a ton of tailwind building up here that might be very exciting. And again, it's just kind of going, going where people don't want to go. Yeah, the and, and the uranium trade has been interesting because obviously that's the future, right? Is we're gonna have way more nuclear. Like the crazy thing to me is we could solve so much of carbon emissions just by stopping coal and running nuclear now. The fact that people are still terrified of nuclear when the technology has come so much further than what it was in you know the the Chernobyl era, right? Like people still pattern match that. I'm like, but we've innovated since then. It's such a, it's such a better space and process. Um, yep. The lithium trade as well, you could have hmm. done well in a lot of those names when you, when we saw, you know, EVs taking up, it, it might still be early days for those names. I'm not sure, but energy is a hard sector for the reason that you mentioned is the, you know, is there a terminal zero on oil? Like, do we eventually get off of it entirely? Maybe it's like just, just airlines will have, will have oil and nothing else. And who, who knows? It's a, that is very much, I mean, you're, you're a macro guy. You're wearing a, a macro shirt right now. So I'm not, that a macro is very guy. much, <laughs> this is just the but, name of the company. I'm the farthest thing from a macro guy. <laughs> so I'll trade it, but you know, you know how Buffett has this quote unquote, too hard pile. Yes. Yeah. That's in my too hard pile. Yep. And I know Buffett would put biotech or life science in his too hard pile. But for me, like I'm interested enough to actually look into it and do the work. So, you know, uh, but I'm not a billionaire either. So he's probably right on all of this and we should just own, you know, these names. So. Yeah. And I, and, 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 and I kind of think you, you, you hit it on the, on the head where I'm viewing oil and energy as like a trade, like a, like a maybe medium to long-term swing trade, not necessarily something that you think can compound for, for, for decades, obviously. So at one point, you decide to leave Google and join Lex Markets, which is this cool real estate. The way the, the way I would think about it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it reminds me of this company called Ground Floor, which I guess lets you buy like partial like shares or stakes in various real estate projects. So, what is Lex Markets, and kind of what is what is the tech that they're building, and why did you decide to join them? Yeah. Um... And I, I did a bunch of stuff between Google and Lex. And I actually also took like, I took like six months off work in the pandemic. So done a bunch of stuff uh, between Google. Um, yeah, Lex is very cool. So we are allowing individual retail investors to own shares in 
potentially revenue generating commercial real estate for as little as $250 a share. And so we are IPOing individual commercial real estate assets. We did the first single asset IPO earlier this year to our private beta users. And we have additional IPOs that are coming up that are going to be available to everyone. Um, the difference between a REIT and us is a REIT has a whole bunch of assets packaged together. And so as opposed to a REIT, you actually are getting direct ownership in commercial real estate, which has all sorts of tax benefits. Um, and then you are able to basically in our app, build your own sort of monopoly game of properties that That's you amazing. want in the, market, in the markets that you want. And you're buying and selling shares. We are um, one of, I think like only 40 ATSs, alternative trading systems. Um, we're basically one level below like a NASDAQ. Um, hmm. We have one building already publicly listed. Um, you can, of course, buy shares in the Lex app or the Lex website. Um, soon you'll be able to just buy those shares in you know, your Schwab account or whatever as well. So um, you know, we want to be the platform for buying and selling and, and, and listing for owners uh, commercial real estate. And so, yeah, it's been a sector that's, you know, it's a 13, I think it's like $18 trillion sector, massive, massive sector um, that previously you had to be a rich private equity overlord, or you had to inherit property that was passed down from your family. And the cool thing about Lex is your, your ownership, you're basically on the same footing as the actual building owners. And so when they collect income, they have to, you own a percent of the building. Um, you get a deposit in the Lex app of, you know, whatever percent you own that Got quarter. It. And so, yeah. And, and so it's another one of the passive income plays. The other thing is REITs will still trade with, with markets. So when markets go down, you know, REITs will go down too. Um, we are not like we're, you're, you're going to be able to own assets be at the golf course. You, you don't have to check the app or anything. You're going to be golfing and, and not worried um, about what's happening, which is, I, I think, probably a smarter thing for most people that aren't us. Um, I actually don't think most people should try and own individual stocks, but there's uh, there's us people, and I think more and more in the younger demographic where you know they own, you know, they own the companies that they like. They own Tesla. They own Nike. They own some crypto. Like they actually do want to build their own portfolio, I, and I think that's legitimate too. Um, I think that's like the, the, the really sort of, um, the, the passionate cohort of investor who, yep. who wants it to be, you know, something that's, that, that, that they have full control over. They don't necessarily, you know, they, they probably also have a Vanguard account, but they don't want to fully be at the whim of, you know, of other people deciding where their money goes. That's fascinating. I'm on the wait list. I just joined. I'm number 300, 3,015. Yeah. Um, and don't let that daunt you. We we will let we're letting people in pretty quickly. So sweet, awesome. This is this is very exciting. I'm uh, I'm I'm definitely going to take a look because like the the thing I love about real estate again is you've got the tax benefits and you've got you know the passivity about it, but the thing I hate about it is in the physical space. Like I one of my one of my good friends, Jason Greenwald, he does real estate investing. He'll do like foreclosures at auctions in the DMV area where I live. And just the amount of like sweat equity that goes into these things and like, no, so what? we're, we're doing, we're doing all of the hard work for you. And exactly. Um, yeah. We're, 
it is, I, I think at this point, so one of the reasons I was even willing to join another startup at this point is they're like, we're doing a really hard problem. And I think that's, the, you know, those are the types of startups that you want to join, right? Like at this point, are, are there really that many easy problems in tech? You, you kind of want to be part of a team solving this meaty problem because that's a moat in and of itself. Yep. Um, but also it's, it's like, that's going to be interesting for you to work on here. Cause I think my opinion is tech is fairly mature here, especially software. And that's why the most exciting quote unquote thing is blockchain, which 10 years in has no real use other than speculation. Um, and that's fine. I actually, I, I actually think the people who are coming at it from the perspective of, Hey, speculation is the use case like good for them. Their eyes are wide open. Yeah. Um, and, but, but the fact that, you know, like where tech is at right now, I feel like biotech, I, I feel like biotech is at where tech was at in like the nineties, right? Like there's a whole sea change happening. So like MRNA, like we, we came up with a vaccine in like two days, they came up with the vaccine. Basically people don't know that they had that whole thing sequenced and they basically came up with that straight away. Yeah. Um, CRISPR, which is we're editing our own cells. So I, I think like when you see that versus, you know, people are making all digital eBay, like OpenSea, great. You can bid on JPEGs. Like, and I'm an artist too. So I yeah. should be really interested in this. I listed an NFT. We raised like 5K for St. Jude in like two hours. I mean, that's really wow. cool, but, but it's not like these are things you couldn't also have done before, right? Yeah. Like, but people are super excited because, uh, you know, what, what else are you going to be excited about? Like another piece of collaboration software or, oh, okay, you know, another, you know, another way to, run online advertising with, you know, another layer of AI. So your targeting is better. Well, yeah, there's, you know, a hundred other pieces of software that can do that. So you mentioned that you're an artist and you sold an NFT. Um, you, one of the things that people may not know about you, but maybe they should, because I think that link, your, your SoundCloud link is in your, is in your Twitter description. So this is kind of a giveaway, but you're a DJ and you make really cool music. I was actually listening to your SoundCloud while I was making the outline for this conversation. Um, so when did you, when did, when did that passion start when it comes to making music? And then how did you stumble on the genre that, that, that you now produce? Yeah. So, um, I used to be a DJ. Let's, let's clarify. Um, Once a DJ, always a DJ. <laughs> so I, I, I write music now and I've kind of always played music on piano. Um, I don't think DJ is the right word, but I, I didn't change that question because I wanted you to say it because people assume because you make electronic music, you're also a DJ. That might be true. And, and I can DJ, but that might also not be true. You might just, yeah. you, you might just compose. And I actually think electronic music, um, not the stuff you hear in Vegas, but you know, the, the really interesting electronic music is the new classical, right? It's, it, people are like, oh, there's, n there's no good music being made anymore. I'm like, absolutely wrong. There's amazing jazz, amazing electronic music. It's one of those genres where there's always new classical music. There's always new jazz music, right? There's always new great hip hop music. And there will always be new great electronic music just because it's not being played on the radio. Well, they're optimizing for averages, right? They're never going to play, you know, stuff that's taking chances or stuff that sounds weird or different, right? Like that's yeah. not their business. Um, so yeah, and when I was, um, I was taught piano, uh, classical piano as a child, I hated it. I didn't like being told what to play. Mm -hmm. And in my teens, I used to, um, 
you know, we had a piano in the house. I used to try and write music and I wasn't very good. And then when I was 16 or 17, a friend took me to a rave um, in South Florida at that time, like, you know, pre 2000, like this was when electronic music was just coming to America. Surprisingly, Florida of all places had some of the most amazing uh, UK and European electronic artists coming to Florida. Cause there was- Why like do you think that was? Um, well, two reasons. One, South Beach, you know, South Beach was a great party scene, but two, um, Gainesville, Florida, believe it or not, uh, University of Florida, where I later yep. went to school, there's a small club there called Simon's. And there was a very passionate electronic music community there who was very plugged into what was going on globally. And they would huh. bring Sasha and Digweed. They would bring Lee Burge. They would bring Underworld, like crazy, crazy names to Gainesville, Florida. And <laughs> the artists would play Gainesville and then they'd also play South Beach and South Florida where I lived. So I got exposed to all this great music I think I was like 17 and I got to see Orbital Live. I was like right in front of them at the show. And I'm like, this is awesome. Because as a kid, I had loved like, you know, I played Quake. Like the Quake soundtrack was Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails is electronic and industrial. It's the same vein, right? And I was always into, you know, all these nerdy video games had electronic scores. And so, yeah. but that, that sort of prelude to actually seeing like live electronic music where, you know, it's it's you know they have a mix of drum machine and synthesizer and vocal and they have guitar and you know it's it's like this whole actually experiencing what the art form should be and so um at a party i like met um these two guys corner and devon who uh didn't live far from me and um they invited me over because i'm like oh this is so cool they're like do you want to learn to dj i'm like sure and so i went to their house like a few weeks later and they showed me the basics and um, they took me to a record store and like we listened to music and the kids don't know now because all the DJs just buy music on a site called Beatport. You used to have to go to a vinyl shop and you would have to dig through all of these records to find music that fit your genre and fit your vein. And, you know, in yeah. your, in your mind, you're like putting a set together as you're, as you're, you know, sampling all this music. And it's not like, um, you know, you're a top 40 DJ playing, um, you know, whatever the latest tits are, you actually like the whole point was for you to play a set where people had never heard anything or for you to play a set where people were like, holy crap, how did they make those two songs go together? Like I never, like in, in, in a way that made sense and flowed and was interesting. And yeah, so um, when I went, when I went to college, I brought um, my turntables, I brought my records and I actually didn't know that Gainesville, Florida was such an awesome music scene. And like my first week there, I figured, I figured out there were like cool electronic music shows. So I went to one and afterwards, like a bunch of people, um, you know, invited me to, you know, Gainesville shuts down at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., whatever it was. They invited me to a house party and there was no music there. I'm like, hey, guys, I have turntables. And so the guy whose house it is like drove us back to my dorm. We go into my dorm at like 2 a.m. I was like, what the, what the hell are you guys doing? I'm like, dude, wake up, come to a party with us. <laughs> and yeah, we brought like my turntables back. And so I sort of got plugged into the Gainesville uh, music scene. Um, I used to play clubs there just for fun. Like they, they couldn't afford to pay like local arts, but you know, it was a, a very cool local music scene where mm. on a Friday night, it was always the same, you know, 50 people. Like we all knew each other. And eventually we brought in like big name artists. I got to open for James Abila. I got to open for, you know, Oscar, Oscar G and Edgar V, you know, like the, the, like sort of, they're like the iconoclast names of Miami. Okay. Um, and then, 
yeah, after college, um, I played shows in South Beach. I moved back to South Florida for a little bit. And um, yeah, th then I started working, I became, you know, boring suit working and marketing. But the the real challenge isn't DJing. Like I got kind of bored with that. It's, it's fun, but um, creating music is, is the challenge, right? And that's something you can do your whole life. You don't have to, you know, go to clubs till 2 a.m. and, um, you know, make friends with people if you don't want to. I mean, I, I can do that. I'm just like an old now. So um, yeah, I, I, I still write my own music and um, I still go to shows on occasion, but I think, I think it's good to, I think it's good to find parts of culture that are sort of your own and, you know, versus like, if you ask someone what kind of music they listen to, I think, or not even music, what kind of music, movies, um, books they read. Like if, if what they say is like really boring, like, are they going to be interesting if like the totality of yeah. the media consumption is also kind of boring? And I, I may be being, um, you know, an annoying hipster, but at, at some point, like you should consume interesting media if you yourself are an interesting person, because what you create, like the, what you end up making, whether it's written word or your own art or something, it is really the totality of what you've experienced. Like you're processing that, you're putting it out into you know your own personality and, and your view of what of of what that craft should be. So like you should you know we talk about like media diets a lot and marketing, and I like actually worry that people you know consume too much Fox News and too much Twitter, or whatever it is. But for like art, like what you what you do consume like is, is what you create. I mean, you can't, you're not a blank slate. You're, you're this amalgamation of everything that happens. So um, I, I, I love when I meet people, not even for music and media, but when they just have like weird interests, like if they, you know, if, if they do woodworking in their free time, if they, you know, make amazing food, if they, you know, work on their cars. Um, I actually really like car culture. I think one of the things that worries me about like the EV world is we're going to move away from, you know, a kid getting an old Acura Integra, adding a supercharger, putting better exhaust and intake on it. Like what a great interest that is too. And we're going to like kill that. Right. So that's like one of the fears of modernity when everything becomes this box, you know, we talked a little bit about 90s AOL days. Well, back then you had to upgrade your own RAM. And that's like a real skill. Like now, you know, Zoomers, Gen Z kids are going to get handed iPads and phones and they're not even going to know how the computer works inside. That's just a miniature version of, you know, yeah. what you built in the 90s when you upgraded it yourself. And so in the, maybe it doesn't matter, but maybe we get to an apocalyptic scenario where you're going to want to be able to build your own board. I don't know. You know, um, it's, it's one thing that you could extrapolate from that is that over time, the end user has gotten farther and farther away from like the node of innovation on a product level. And whether that's deliberate or whether that's purely consequential is, you know, probably a good, a good debate, but, but, but you're right. I was listening to, um, I think it's Russ Roberts who has a podcast economic talk or something like that. And there's this guy on there who wrote, who wrote a book about autonomous driving and how, that the pushback is like, while while that seems like an amazing thing, right? Like this 50 minutes, let's say your average commute 50 minutes, and there's so much more you could do if you didn't have to drive, you could just like look at your phone, you could do work and stuff like that. The downside to that is we're, we're, we're now in a world where we're constantly inundated with ads, with things that we should do, with companies telling us what we do and what 
what, what we should buy, what we should wear, that the argument that the author was making was that like this drive time, this 50 minute commute is our one moment where we've got this control over our world, where we can listen to what we want, we can choose not to listen to anything. And like, we are in control of, of, of that situation. And if you, if you play it out, right, like beyond the EVs, and then we get to autonomous driving, it's like, what does that commute become? But just another 50 minutes where companies, whether it's something like a Google or an Apple, can then inundate you with more of whether it's advertising or just like trying to create the life that 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 they think you want to live. Yeah, and it's scarier than that when you consider. Um, I don't know if you're an aviation nerd, but I'm if not. you follow air, if you follow air disasters globally, a lot of the air disasters are are not U.S. based. They're they're international, where you have pilots who are trained mostly on the autonomous flying software. And then what happens is something like something breaks or something unexpected happens or a sensor goes bad. And if you had a, if you had the right pilot in that situation where they, they had the right number of hours behind them in a lot of these air disasters, they would have landed that plane. And the, the, the scary thing is when there are shortcuts taken or there's too much automation applied and the people don't have the fundamentals of like you're saying driving or flying and then something happens that's unexpected which if you work in software that happens all the time so um and and it can even happen when everything goes perfectly like you can and we have redundancy now on planes but there could be you know like like a solar flare a little piece of radiation causes an error in one chip and it, you no longer have that 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 piece of function anymore. And now you have to manually, you know, compensate for that. And that's like a real thing that happens. So I, I know that sounds crazy, but planes have been taken down that way. And so, yeah, I, I think it, it, it is concerning. Um, on the other hand, 30,000 deaths a year from, from not just drunk driving, but just accidents, texting, all those things. So um, there's probably some middle ground, like I think you should still, you know, if, even with fully autonomous, I think you should still know how to physically drive the car in those situations where, you know, you need to. Um, what you were saying was interesting, though, about this, this notion of time that's your own. And so if I, I actually think that's kind of dark that you're the podcaster friend you were talking about was saying this is your only time to control your media experience or maybe even you know, your inputs, right? So I read another article this week or last week, which was terrible, which basically said something to the point of, because um, I don't agree with this. They were saying the commute is your, is people miss the commute because it was their chance to wind down, which is yeah. weird to me. Sitting, sitting in traffic to me is not winding down. Like this was a Wall Street Journal story. Yeah. And a concerning thing with, with that and with your podcast from what they were saying is like, do people not realize they could take a walk or a bike ride or go for a swim or mm -hmm. go to the gym? Like, have we have, have so many people just lost that to where they need to be in a car and, and not be able to look at their phone to unplug? Is that something mm -hmm. like people aren't taught? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering what you think. Maybe what it is, because, because I agree with you, right? Like, I don't, Again, I'll, I'll have to go back and listen to the podcast, but I don't know if he used like the totalitarian, like it's the only time. But what I'm what I'm guessing is we're we're used to having that time, and 
we've always known that we can just take a walk if we wanted to like that option has always been there but now i think what what's what's happening with driving and maybe maybe what's scary with this autonomous driving because the company's behind it right you've got like the apples and the googles that are just trying to create this you know smart utopian city or society which again is like a huge you know metaverse topic there but you know adding autonomous driving makes sense if that's their end goal and so we have just grown up and 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 lived in a in a world where driving was like this thing that was ours and so now there's inklings that maybe that's being taken away and it's not necessarily ours but it's something that we do passively whereas walking is something that we've always known we can do and it's always been in our like utility belt that we control and that we know it's not going to get taken away so maybe 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 that's like where the tension is yeah, getting a dog solves solve that. It forces yeah. you to walk. <laughs> you know, one other one other interesting thing is you were talking about like Google and Facebook controlling your life um, and chips being everywhere. So we just built a home in Austin, Texas, and yeah. this is actually scary. Um, I when we were building the home and we were going through all the appliances. This was pre-pandemic, by the way, because now it's like really hard to do this. Um, I specifically chose every single appliance washer dryer that was dumb and had no chip in it and didn't connect to the internet. Here's mm -hmm. where it gets scary. Um, there was only like one or two of those left and there were like hundreds of options of things that connected to the internet. Okay. And so I, from an engineering perspective, like I've always been a nerd and built my own computers and things like that. You want the simplest possible engineering and hardware. It's, you want dead simple, fewer things to go wrong. And the dystopian timeline is imagine you can't use your oven because your internet went down and there will come a day that your appliance might not. Here's the thing. It's not like Google and Facebook engineers are working on this stuff. These, the, the user interfaces are terrible. The one thing I had to have internet connected was, um, was my irrigation system. And I still okay. haven't been able to get the app to work. And I know how to code, I know how to build networks, and I can't even get their stupid app to work. So um, I think maybe in a few generations it will get better, but I don't think that we're at a point where like, I, I don't want even Google to be able to decide, oh, you know, I want your house at a certain temperature right now, right? Like, and, and they can do that. Their nest can decide arbitrarily, mm -hmm. oh, we, you know, there's a power grid issue and you should, you know, not run your air. Like, I actually want like, and I'm happy to adjust my air if there's a power grid issue and I, I follow all that news and I will raise my temperature, but I don't want the machines doing it. I, I'm happy to walk over and do it myself and I will. Um, right. So. Exactly. It's that, it's, it's that whole thing, whether it's, you know, a personality thing, cause I'm, because I'm the same way, like I'll gladly do something, but if somebody then forces it on me, like, Hey, you have to do this or like, Hey, we're doing this, whether you want to or not, like immediately, even if I agree with it, right. Even if it's something that I've agreed with my whole life, I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm not going to do it just because you told me that I have to. It's like that, that, that type of mentality where, I mean, even we saw this. So my, my parents' house, BG&E, basically came out with a letter, you know, they sent out a letter and they said, Hey, and this was like the first time it happened in Maryland. They're like, Hey, um, 
you know, like it's, 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 it's about to get really hot, like over this next two weeks. And so if you set your thermostat to like be genie smart home or something, and again, this is paraphrasing, but like, if you set it to smart home, then we're going to shut off your AC at certain periods during the day, just to make sure that we have enough capacity. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know what, I might've done that out of my own like decision and free will. But the fact that someone else is like, Hey, this is what we're doing. It just, I don't know if it's a little perturbing. Right. You can imagine on a long enough timeline, a complete machine totalitarianism over your entire life. And that, that to me is more concerning than the, like the, the, like the, like people in power saying I should get a vaccine. I actually like, I don't even care about that. Like that doesn't bother me. Like Mm -hmm. when I, I don't always agree with Elon, but I agree with him on the the AI creep in everything because that could get dystopian real fast. And remember, the people behind it who are programming it a lot of times it, they're not necessarily um, they are not necessarily as meta aware of what that means because these are private companies. It's not like it's not even like we had a say in it. It's not like. That was democratic, like we got to vote on anything. Correct. Um, so that that's legitimately like that's something to be afraid about. And I that is one thing where, okay, like everyone's all about, okay, let's decentralize everything and you know, have have it all run by have have blockchains run the world. Um, do you know what else is decentralized? An ant colony. An ant colony is decentralized, right? Mm. And but we're not we're not insects, we're humans. And so um, as flawed as we are from a human perspective, we're also not flawed in ways that machines could be. Like we have empathy. Machines don't have empathy, right? Like we, we're able, we have critical thinking. Machines don't have that. And I think machines for some things make sense. I want, I, I want machines doing calculations that I, I don't want to do. I want machines, you know, making decisions of, um, you know, how to, how to, um, you know, run certain algorithms or, you know, I'm okay with that. Or, you know, a machine scouring the web to find me the best result. I can't, I can't view billion or millions or billions of web pages, but at, at the same time, you know, like humans are great too. We like a, a lot of the nerds forget that. Like they want code to run everything. And ha- that's, that's why I, I also want a lot of nerds to actually like take some humanities classes. Cause there are a lot of things humans are just better at that yeah. are just better at. Um, I don't like ceding control of all of society to if then statements is, is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I just finished reading Peter Thiel's zero to one. And, you know, that's why this whole thing is kind of top of top of mind, but Peter puts it great. I mean, he, he has a way of, you know, putting a lot of things greatly. Um, he's saying that basically the point with, with computers is like computers in a, in a, in a perfect world, right. And in air quotes, computers aren't meant to overtake humans, they're meant to complement humans. And so if you have humans that have computers as tools and not necessarily, you know, they're building to become replacements, that's where you get the best of both worlds. And I completely agree. And the real scary thing is we don't think about these things. And so an example of this is um, things like self-checkout or things like automated you know robots to take your order at a restaurant and these things seem great except when you realize we're automating jobs for people who might not have other work and we have people 
at the MBA level and the decision maker level who just think about their bottom line or just think about how they could optimize their process when yeah. really the entire function of that business from a macro societal perspective isn't just the product. It's giving people work and meaning and something to do. Arguably, that's more important than the burger at the end. And you can argue that the other way if you want. I, I don't believe that's true. And so the problem is we can be become hyper-efficient, hyper-optimized. Um, I'd be more okay with that if we thought through it all, how, what were you going to do about all the people we displaced? Because at mm -hmm. the end of the day, it's like, yeah, your burger's 20 cents cheaper, but now the guy making the burger, like he has nothing to do. And yep. I think it's like, I, I think a lot of really smart people think everyone can find something else to do. And that's not true. A lot of people, that's the level of what they can do. Mm -hmm. And we don't account for that. Like, um, if you don't have a certain IQ, you can't even join the military. And we don't think, what could we do with those people, right? right? And it's like, you want those people to be productive and happy and working because if not, we're just going to, we're going to destabilize society. Like, yeah. like we, we should want to have, you know, a, like a restaurant run a little bit less lean if it gives more people work and meaning compensates them and they can go out and spend, right? right. If we're going to run the hyper-optimized machine, why don't we think about what, what those people are going to do during the day? And yeah. Andrew Yang might be the only politician who has this conversation. He talks about it with trucking. He talks about it with various manufacturing. And I think the right thing to do is absolutely to automate all the things none of the other humans want to do. Great. Make, you know, maybe no one wants to take out the garbage and that should all be automated. But there's, we're going to, we're already going into areas where we're automating jobs where actually a huge cohort wants to do that work every day. And we don't think about that. Yep. So to, to go back to the machine totalitarian society thing, um, this would be like the MBA way of thinking. And it's so, you know what it is? It is um, shareholder capitalism, not stakeholder capitalism. And hmm. stakeholder capitalism also takes into account your actual employees and the people working there, not just your shareholders. And if you just run the shareholder capitalism thing, I think your company is eventually doomed. You're going to be part of the S&P that churns. But if you're part of the stakeholder capitalism, like Costco, where they actually do give their employees, you know, healthcare and benefits and let them level up, why is Costco so successful with that model? And why will they be in their future? Because look at how happy their staff are. Like you go into a Costco, and I know I'm like so middle America now. Like, and you talk to, um, you know, like I talk to the guy who's working on you know, the meats in the butcher section. And we're like, how's your day going? He's like, great, having an awesome day. Um, you know, he, I'm like, what's good? He's like, oh, the the um, the ribeyes I just cut look awesome. I'm like, hey, thanks, man. And like, it's, it's a great interaction. Um, I think that the problem is with, you know, thinking through, uh, again, th this is something with the tech industry that worries me is, I saw this in Silicon Valley. Um, I was probably one of the only people in my neighborhood who knew the name of my local barista, of the guy who you know served me food at my local Greasy Spoon. I would talk to him, I was part of the community. And I saw a lot of other people in tech, and I'm not saying this is everyone, they never took off their AirPods, they didn't look up from their phone, and they were almost, we were talking about ant colonies, they were almost part of the ant colony. They're like, they're not meta aware of their situation. So mm -hmm. when we see all the people with the obsession over the, quote unquote, metaverse, I, I think on some level, 
they are hiding from their physical reality for whatever reason. I think that mm. that's a psychological manifestation of wanting to draw inward and to a digital space. And I'm not saying all digital spaces are bad. Look, I'm an, I'm an online marketer. I do this, but there's more to life than that. Right. And I think, um, I think you were talking about like the time in your car and the, you know, maybe not having time for yourself. I think that's might be part of the same story where your life is so mediated by companies and marketers. I'm very sorry. I, I hopefully, um, mediate in the right direction, but you know, that, 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 you know, they, they need to sort of have some personal discovery and, 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 and some agency, take control of agency of your life. I mean, that's a big discussion here as well. I think that humans have even agency. I think the people who say they don't are wrong. I think they just haven't asserted themselves. And so, um, the more we can instill that in people, I think, you know, the less we are, you know, the, the less we do have to worry about, um, you know, people not unplugging and people not being part of their communities and people wanting to maybe automate all the jobs of everyone in their community without thinking about those people, right? There's no, there, like, there, there's no broader awareness. And so that, I think it's all the same story. I think it's all the same concern. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I appreciate that, that, um, you know, that whole block of time that you just took to explain that. And for those that want to get a glimpse at maybe what this detachment looks like when it comes to digital worlds, I don't know if you're a fan of the office, but there's an office episode where Dwight gets real heavy into second life because his first life is so terrible. And cause I think at that point, Angelo was dating Andy or something like that. And he, yeah. you know, he was just down and you bring in like the website that was generating all those sales. And so like things were terrible for him. So he switched from his first life to his second life. And I wonder if, you know, you can use the, online engagement and the digital world engagement, like the user statistics as a proxy for like how good people feel about themselves, where if digital engagement goes up and people are playing in these digital worlds more and more and more, like, I wonder if that's a negative correlation to how they're interacting in daily life and how they're actually feeling about the life that they're living around them instead of just immersing themselves in these digital worlds. Yeah. And I think, Brendan, how old are you? 26. Okay. You're a little younger than me, but um, you, you did get to grow up a little bit without technology, maybe just a hair. No, you, you I, I had did, technology. Yeah. So I had to, the, the, one, <laughs> one of the earliest memories I had was we had like dial up. So if my mom was on the phone, I couldn't use the internet. Yeah. And like, okay. That was kind of my earliest iteration of, of the internet. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I tend to think the best use of the internet and connecting with others is to take that connection into the physical world. And Correct. so I've tried, I've traveled the world, you know, for several companies, every time I'm in New York, like I meet with people I've never met before from either Twitter or Reddit or blogging. And, um, you know, if I'm in a new city, I've literally like been in like a random city in Italy and I've tweeted, I was there and within five minutes, like someone responded and was like, Oh, do you want to grab a, you know, a cafe, a, co a coffee? And, you know, met up with them. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very cool. And I think that that's sort of the, the peak use of the internet is to meet people offline, to do things offline. Um, you know, I met my first girlfriend when I was 16 years old from, from AOL. She was, my, my parents made sure she was a real person. You know, but, <laughs> Not like a man. Like, hey, you know, like, You're going to meet someone <laughs> off the internet and she was fine. And, you know, they, they left us alone, but um 
yeah, it's it's funny because if you want to if you wanted to actually be really early to um to things, you would look at what kids are doing today with online offline connection that is different in the past because everything we've done online, whether if it was meet friends, which you know, there's plenty of meetup sites on um, dating from the internet, you know, match.com, any of these things. Um the behavior of the new generation, what they do online, offline, I think if you looked at that, hmm. that would be instructive as to yeah. like things to build more than, okay, just another social network or just another, you know, link sharing site, right? Like those things are, are you know, you build it, you market it, you grow it. But I, I legitimately think if you were to build things to codify what people are doing at like intersections of, of technology, whether it's technology and healthcare or it's technology and, you know, socialization, like there's, there's probably like, that's a blue ocean more than just another product management or project management app. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually a fascinating topic. And it's one, like, I'm wondering how you can do that without like getting pedophile vibes. I mean, it's got to be like kids that you know, or like friends that have younger kids. Because like my, I, my, my family, I mean, you could, you could always just look at like Fortnite, right? Like, I guess the Fortnite culture, um, where you've got kids that like, for instance, my best friend's younger brother, he would play Fortnite with his friends and they would go into like, I guess it's called like the, is it, is it the sandbox mode where it's like, or the playground, right? Where you can just go in and like build things and and um and just and just hang out but they would do that and then they would all actually just like come over to one person's house so whether it was like this one kid's house and then they would all just hang out and talk while like one person was building something or they would play in Fortnite, and then they would all like go hang out and like go play sports or go ride a bike or something and so you know it's like trying to figure out maybe the core like the core things like of what they're doing and then extrapolating that over, okay, like over the next five to 10 years, like will these core drivers of interaction stay the same? And then how does digital media or how does digital spaces fit into like the core of, of, of their socialization? Yeah, Twitch is probably a great example of a company where they're like, yeah. oh, people love playing video games. And when we were kids, actually, I still love watching my friend. It was really good playing video games. I love games. watching, yep. Right. So that was an observation of a, you know, social behavior that was with something digital that someone's like, oh, we can build something around this. So, yeah, I think um, probably the the Pokemon Go one is another cool one yeah. where people like to, I actually love Pokemon Go and Ingress, which is the nerd version, um, because it encourages you to get exercise. It encourages you to socialize. Um, there's great communities around it. Um, I think we talked a little bit about you know, taking a walk earlier, right? Like that's a great game because it gets people outside into the, their physical space. I, I love that. I think um, one other really interesting thing on this is I've worked with a number of different industries and they make, it's usually boomers, they make a distinction. They're like, okay, and here's what we're doing in the internet. And then here's what we're doing, you know, in physical world. I'm like, whoa, that's wrong. Physical yeah. world and the internet aren't these distinct things. It's like, what's the one thing we're going to do market? And it shouldn't be an internet marketing and physical marketing strategy. It should just be a marketing strategy. And I think mm-hmm. we'll get to a point sooner rather than later. It won't be online marketing or digital marketing or online trading or 
online currency. It will just be like, we're going to drop the online. It's cleaner. It's just part of the world. And so I I think we're already there. And you can sort of, in your conversations with people, you can see where they're at mentally. If they make that distinction, um, our children will make no such distinction. That will be completely gone. So um, that, that, that's one dimension I see people like still thinking, oh, it's online, offline, oh, it's Zoom, it's physical. I'm like, well, just pretend like it's all physical and it all gets mm-hmm. easier. Yeah, and again, and that's going back way back earlier to what we said, where you like to invest in things that kind of excite you, right? Because you're not, you're, you're not, you're not a you know, investor in the sense of you've got LP money, it's, 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 it's your own money, you, know, you, 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 you call it your quote unquote fun money, but there's, there's real edge in that because A, well, there's always an edge in just running your own capital because you're not beholden to anybody else and the stresses of, of, of managing others' money. But then B, it allows you to follow your passions and not necessarily follow like the things that would optimize for results, at least in kind of the short to medium term. And that's where I'm trying to tie all this together where it's like, okay, how do these digital worlds and these offline worlds amalgamate? And where are some ways to invest? Because I don't consider myself a, a builder, like from tech and, 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 and all that stuff. I mean, I, I tried to learn Python, but I don't consider myself a builder. I consider myself an investor. And so like what I'm fascinated about is this idea of combining this passion, right? For digital worlds and offline worlds and like the future of socialization and where I can invest within that theme and kind of within, within that dynamic and, 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 and that bet over time. Um, and whether, whether that's in the private space or the public space. And so, you know, I don't know if you have any, um, history or any, any sort of past experience investing in companies that are trying to build something like this. I mean, you've got the obvious, right? Like the Roblox, um, of the world, you've got Facebook with, with what they're doing with Oculus and all these things, but do you know of any other, maybe like, um, nascent companies that, that, that people might not be aware of? Um, so I don't, I'm, I used to be such a gamer nerd and I'm so out of the loop. I've, I've heard friends and friends, kids rave about Roblox. So I love that you mentioned them. Um, obviously Google owns, they own, they own Ingress and Pokemon Go, right? Or, I think they I know. Well, what is it. what is what is Ingress? Because I don't actually know what Ingress is. So Ingress is Pokemon Go. It's like just skinned with okay. instead of instead of like happy Pokemon stuff. It's like capture the flag, you know, like industrial weapon type stuff, and you defend your base. Um, yeah, the, and that one's like got a cult following as well. I'm so out of the gamer stuff. I mean, if I wanted to invest in that space, I would probably just own, um, you know, Apple, Google, just own the platforms, right? You, you know, you have exposure. They're like almost their own like ETFs in a sense, because, you know, they're like, they're so, they do so many things. They have so many products. Um, they have platforms, you know, they are toll booths on the internet. It's, that'll be interesting. Apple's sort of losing their grip and Google's always been, you know, their, their fees and their, you know, from the app store perspective are not nearly as intense as Apple. So I think that that will get, there'll be antitrust there at some point. You mentioned Apple and kind of their app store and the fees. I know that they just had a court case with, is it Epic, Epic Games? Games. Yeah, yeah, correct. What are what are your thoughts maybe long-term about the take rate that Apple gets currently and the importance of- on $250 billion cash file. I mean, at some point, you know, these, these companies have to realize if for nothing else, the optics of it are wrong when there's- 
you know, app developers who are barely, barely getting by. And it's like the Apple behemoth, you know, just does what the fuck they want and, you know, has an obscene cash pile. Like it's, and I, I think, you know, the, they'll be, they just make themselves ever more of a Goliath to a David, the longer that they carry that on. And there's always inroads for disruption. We think, we think, Everyone thinks in their own time, oh, these, you know, these, these big companies are never going to be able to be disrupted. And time and time again, we see that's not the case. So, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see what happens. Cause like we, I mean, we've, we've lived, at least I have my entire life with like Google and Apple being the biggest conglomerates. And what's, what's kind of, I guess, sobering to think of is, the probability that the biggest companies of this decade or even the past decade, the probability of them still being the biggest companies of the next couple decades is like, it's, it's, it's more likely that they will not be the biggest companies of the next decade, just going off of history. Right. But then again, you get into this topic of increasing returns to scale and we're not actually maybe, maybe comparing those two things is not apples to apples and like, maybe 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 we're wrong. I, I actually, um, I think it'd be cool if they forced Google to break up just because then I could buy a sizable uh, YouTube position. If YouTube was a standalone company, I would have like, I, I'd have like a ridiculous allocation to YouTube. Um, so what I, you- think, I think that they're better than Netflix on a number of dimensions. They are what the future of media should be. No barriers. Um, YouTube and SoundCloud are awesome. Spotify and Netflix are the past. So you need to, because like Spotify as an artist, they put up all these fucking barriers to have my music up there. And then I've had my original, 100% original music taken down by false DMCA notices. So speaking of robot totalitarianism, I've had my art censored online, as have many creative people have had their content taken down for a number of reasons. And thankfully, um, you know, like I'm well connected. I was able to have that fixed, but most people can't. And you're just shit out of luck and so that's that's not a great situation either but i i like the youtube model a lot um youtube is great because you know i've uploaded videos and had discovery almost instantly for good content and so what a great ecosystem when you can contribute and they're going to surface your content Mm -hmm. the albums i have on spotify have never been surfaced soundcloud has surfaced my art they surface content that is not just from big labels, big artists, they, great ideas can come from anywhere. Imagine if Twitter for you only surfaced Bloomberg and CNN and I actually really like Mark Cuban, but people like Mark Cuban, right? Um, Why do we, why do we think that anyone else's content or specific types of content are different? They're not. That's why I watch YouTube videos from random people that are better than something, some, you know, mid twit uh, content manager at Netflix decided to green light, right? For like me, it was more interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I like the, I like those platforms more. Um, I hope if YouTube, if Google was forced to like break up and spin off YouTube, I would be so excited to buy shares. Just like if space, if Facebook had to spin off Instagram, you'd probably be like, I'm not going to own Facebook. Oh, I'll buy some Instagram shares just because, yeah. you know, it's, it's just a better product, yeah. I think. Or if, you know, again, in the same lines, if Amazon had to spin off its AWS, like how many investors would would sell Amazon just to buy AWS at that point? 
let's pivot now to your Substack writing. So we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of in the last home stretch here um, with, with this topic. I mean, you've given us an hour and a half. So I think, I think we're going to maybe push two hours. We'll see. Again, I totally appreciate you, you given the time you wrote a piece that connected fishing poker on TV and investing all in one, which is actually three interests of mine that I have, which is funny because I love to fish. I love poker. And obviously I, 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 I love investing. So what's the connection between all three walk us through, you know, why you decided to write that piece in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I think, thank you for bringing that up. That one's a fun one. Um, I like that you fish and play poker and invest because they're all kind of, they're all similar when you're, when you've done them long enough. And here's the problem in media. If you watch fishing on TV, they only show the guy with, you know, catching like five amazing trophy fish in a row. It's just hit, hit, hit excitement all the time. But if you've actually been fishing, it's hours of just waiting. And I think that part's fun. You have a, a beer or coffee with a friend, talk about the world, you talk about macro econ, you talk about companies, art, whatever. And then once in a while you catch a fish, but on TV, they show it to be really exciting. The same thing in poker. So if you've actually played a poker tournament and won, you weren't playing every hand. If you were playing every hand and won a tournament, you're you're playing bingo poker. You're not actually (laughs) playing the game. And so on TV though, they only show the, you know, the pocket kings versus the you know the the pocket queens or they show the ace king versus the guy with two fives and it's exciting and he draws out and all in and it's you know really fast right Mm -hmm. and so this is the this is what traditional media does they have you know 30 minutes or for fishing and poker they still you know they might even have an hour for the episode yep but 30 minutes or an hour isn't enough for fishing or for poker. It's not enough for most things, but that is the format. And so when you, and it's fun to watch it, but just, you have to keep in mind that that is not the game. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with investing is sites like Wall Street Bets or Twitter or, you know, CNBC, they will show the investing equivalent of the guy catching the fish, not waiting in between. And then the guy catching another fish, right? They're showing you excitement and um for your best investments brendan what did you do you did nothing you bought the company and then you walked away and you didn't you didn't do anything for 10 years and you let you let your thesis play out and you you know you monitored it but you know you weren't you weren't you know buying it and selling it you weren't jumping up and down on you know that, that that you want a big hand right you were you were fairly calm the whole time and so the the concern is the um the sort of clipification of everything, right? We do this with politics too. Now yeah. politicians have to get their message across in these sound bites. And here's where I'm optimistic. So we're having a, you know, hour and a half long conversation now that people will listen to, um, of you know, two regular people having a conversation on a few topics. And so, but we're not mediated by a 30 minute time slot. We're able to have the conversation all the way through. Yeah. And I think. When we start to do that for other things, like I watch, love him or hate him, there's reasons for both. I actually really like Joe Rogan. Who cares that he says some dumb things once in a while? I like Joe Rogan. Net positive, net positive. He has all these interesting people on, he lets them talk. And so like he had uh, mentioned Andrew Yang. He had Andrew Yang on and talked for 
you know, an hour and a half on UBI. And it's like, I like if you look at past presidential candidates, like when were candidates in front of you for an hour and a half format with no commercials where you could hear their thinking on views. And I want to hear more of that. And that actually, that made me interested in politics. And I usually don't care because they reduce it to sound bites. Correct. So I think, um, I think if the internet can sort of unbundle a lot of these ideas and let them play out, um, you know, and sort of not make them, not make everything into sports, not make everything into clips. Um, I think it's good because some things are fun in clips and sports, but let's just acknowledge that that's not the reality of what they are. So then to push back on that, because I 100% agree. And again, like you said, love him or hate him, Joe Rogan net positive for the amount of information that he's been able to disseminate to millions, millions of viewers from any, any type of opinion, right? Opinion agnostic, but to push back, is, is there value in that if the attention span of the average person has dwindled to so little? And it's actually interesting, right? You can, you can, you can plot this pretty well. We're like the, I, again, I don't have the hard data, but the average attention span of a human has gone, you know, on a curve from left to right, pretty much down in a, in a, in a, in a downward slope. And what's also interesting is the average holding time of a stock has gone from left to right down. And how do you, how do you get that back? Like, how do you reverse that trend? Because if the attention spans stay at low levels, does it even matter if we kind of open up conversation and allow people to have longer form discussions if people aren't listening? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So on the one hand, it's great for us because if you have attention enough to sit down and read a whole book, that's a superpower yep. and let everyone else only be able to read tweets and you can understand the world better. Yep. And that, if, if that was the case for everything, your life would be really easy. Um, I actually think it's not, I, I think there's enough thoughtful people that are willing to dive into issues. Um, okay. So how do you take care of this? There's an ongoing story and I hate this story that social media is like as addictive or as bad for you as drugs or alcohol. It's complete bullshit. If we were to take you, Brandon, or a listener right now who thought they were using social media too much, mm -hmm. and we were to bring you into the woods with a tent and maybe some friends and some food, you would be fine. You would be completely fine. Now, if you were to take an alcoholic in the same situation, they might die because if they're that addicted to alcohol, you actually have to taper to go off. People don't realize you can That's die from not drinking. So look, you can reset your physiology from a pattern of behavior, which is what this is. There is no chemical dependence. So if anyone saying that has not quit alcohol um, or a hard drug and has, or has a, have had a friend do that because you are physically dependent on that substance. Mm -hmm. So if you want to reset, put yourself in a situation, you can't access your devices. I guarantee in an hour or two of at the beach, you know, swimming, you, you would completely forget. You'd be, it, it wouldn't even take that long or camping or whatever you could do. Give yourself a digital detox, lock your phone away, lock your electronics away. I guarantee you'll be fine. Bring some books. Might be hard for a few minutes. You're forced to have a little existential dread. Guess what? That's a good thing. It makes you reevaluate your life. If you have no existential dread all the time, there's a great song by Bo Burnham. If you haven't seen, have you seen his sketch where he's inside? No. And uh, he's a great 
speaking of Netflix, he has a whole Netflix special and he has a song about the internet and it goes, can I interest you in a little bit of everything all of the time? And he's like, talks about how the internet is just everything all the time. And so have that break. And I think you can break yourself of whatever, you know, like I actually have ADD and I'm not medicated for it now. That's why we talk about a lot of different topics and it's fun, but I'm just, I'm going with the chaos of my own neurochemistry a little bit. And yeah. um, I think the thing is, is that if you can find things, you have to, you have to find things that are more interesting to focus on and you'd be surprised how not difficult that is. So one thing that I did personally is not just for this, but I, I rescued a Australian cattle dog, which is basically a herding dog. They're bred to herd sheep. And he forces me to run or walk with him four to five miles a day minimum. And if I don't do that, he will tear up my couch cushions or he will just be a brat and like nip my ankle. So I'll do it because it's not worth it. And yep. the dog has forced me to have this life balance I didn't have before. And I've lost like 15 pounds and I'm feeling better every day. So however you can do it, you know, to, to, to have that balance in your life. And, you know, you can't just be at the edge of a Bloomberg terminal or, you know, watching cable news or on a Twitter feed or on Reddit, yep. you know, you can't do that. You have to, the, the beauty of the internet that I think that, you know, one more comment on this, the beauty of the internet is that it lets us time shift. You can consume on your own time. You don't have to sit and watch, you know, TV all day and stay at the edge, right? Like the important information will come to you. And so break yourself of needing to get everything new now. And um, I think your attention will balance with that. That's, I mean, so good. That's that, that, that little bit right there. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree when it comes to this see rich quick mentality, right? Where you're watching poker and you're seeing that guy go all in and immediately get the reward or you're watching fishing and you, you know, you see the guy set the hook. Do you think that part of that uh, call it philosophy that explains the mania that we're seeing in NFTs and JPEGs where people are always, you know, retweeting like, Hey, this squiggly line just sold for 2.5 million. And six months ago I bought it for, you know, 200,000 and all, and that's, and that's, and that's all people see. That is part of the psychology on display. I think, so I think this is multivariate. I think that's one aspect. I think there's a whole bunch of, new money that got rich on the new financial rails that have nothing else to do with it. And uh, actually a few of them I'm friends with genuinely do want to support artists and they feel like they are to some extent. I like, there are great artists like people and, you know, a few others and it's great to support artists. So that part's awesome. I think there, there are also a bunch of financial nihilists and I think they want to put on display the absurdity of our current market dynamics that they think are absurd or Mm -hmm. they're trying to poke at, you know, our whole system and the fed and they want people to see, you know, it's, it's financial nihilism, right? They don't care. Um, Then there are people who just want to try every new platform and, you know, it's new they're going to sign up and their whole end was say yes everything because the cost of being venture capitalists in the mix who want to try and bootstrap any new thing because they have skin in the game somewhere so it's not one thing it's like any especially as you're well aware in market dynamics there's like always multiple different players and you know there's market makers and there's interests and you know it's it's not it's not one thing but 
I, I do think the, um, you, you do scratch out an important thing where a lot of young people do feel like it's very difficult and or impossible to get ahead. And so whoever's playing on that, whether it's, you know, Robin Hood creating the right hooks in their app to get people to trade more or NFT buyers getting people to, you know, list things for money. I mean, they're, they're, they are absolutely scratching at, um, you know, what we're talking about with this. Oh, you know, you have to win the lottery to get ahead, which obviously we know isn't true. Yeah. And with, this, you know, yeah, this kind of, this kind of plays into the question of, and again, I, I, I don't know the answer, but when I look at this NFT craze and the, the one reason I ask is because, you know, you're an artist, right? So in, 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 in theory, you could take advantage of, of kind of this, this mania by selling music as, you know, tokenized um, ownership in albums or whatever. Do you, do you view this NFT craze as something more akin to the internet bubble where yes, it was, it was, it was huge and it popped, but there was, there was tangible utility there with the internet. And some people saw like, Hey, like there is some good that can come out of this, this whole internet thing. Or do you think it's more along the lines of like the tulip bubble in the 1800s where there's really no utility there? Like it's just tulips going for astronomical prices for no reason. I mean, can't it's like comparing the internet to itself because an yeah. nft would be another meta layer on the internet so i i don't when people are like it's as big as the internet i'm like it's a subset of the internet how the fuck is it as big as the internet like they're just really trying to to to, to hype shit up i mean it's yeah. just it doesn't even make sense um so i'm actually a non-profit artist i i like to make art i don't want to do it for a living. I've paid the rent of artist friends of mine who are 10x more talented than I will ever be because they couldn't afford, uh, you know, their apartment for them and their child. I don't want to live that life. It's if you make really interesting art, there like the more interesting your your art is, the the less money there will be in it. If you want to, you know, pander and create, you know, whatever is popular artist du jour, like clone of it like you can make money if you, if you mm -hmm. want that's to me it's like are you an entertainer or an artist those are really different things um so i don't want to rely on my creativity my raw creativity for my work i'm as a marketer actually like it's a good place for an artist because i get to create ads and like my ads that i create like are interesting i have you know i get to come up with a creative concept and tell a story it's 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 the same thing just for capitalism not you know, for raw artistic expression. And if we ever have a society that values art, I'll do art. But um, I actually have done a good job, like at least like mentally being as satisfied with a piece of ad creative or an art. And some people will call me a sellout for that. And I will say, but cycle, if you were to like read any philosophy, like deriving enjoyment from your creation is literally the whole point, you guys. So, you know, you can take that for, for what you want. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the value of, you know, being able to, I guess, have rights, I think it, it's TBD what happens. I, I think it'll be interesting to see if um, someone actually, like maybe, you know, Cartoon Network or, you know, some YouTube channel like licenses like someone's board apes for a series. And then all the people who own like a part of that, like, get a payday for owning a piece of that IP. Right. That would be so interesting. That'd I just cool. haven't seen. Yeah. I, I, I want to see a few examples in case studies. I think like 
that will be where it's interesting. Um, but that's not how traditional media thinks. Maybe they will in the future. Because if they did, there would be there would be like a whole series already on Wojak. So you know what Wojak is, right? No. Like the, the, so Wojak is like this, this 4chan character and um, he's put into all these situations. He's supposed to be like an almost an avatar for what a human is. I'll, I'll show you some examples later. Just Google Wojak and, you know, on and there'll be, there's a whole like, um, there's a whole site that says like about each meme and it'll explain yeah. it. But there's already so many cool internet culture things that haven't been developed into a series or haven't been licensed and then some have and then some people actually like a lot of you know maybe pop stars or you know actors did get their start online too it's just not really how big media is thinking just yet but maybe we got there so mm -hmm. um I, I don't know how you could like maybe you think board apes are the thing maybe you think it's the penguins like i i don't know how you how you make a reasonable investment i think you want to you have to want to support the artist and you have to think it's cool and if you go in with that and you know you buy like you know you can buy like a 20 dollars board ape. you don't have to buy the million dollar ones that that's fun right you don't you don't have to like yolo your savings on it and if that's what you're doing then cool and you know there's all sorts of other things that you could buy so i think it's that's fun that's that's like a cool thing when you're if you're following like the people who are like trying to create the fomo online about the you know the hundred thousand dollar rocks like it's that spectacle, which is very different. I just have a feeling that this is going to play out and we're going to get another club penguin world. And it's just going to be like early, you know, mid two thousands all over again. And uh, everybody's going to be playing club penguin with their own NFT penguin that they bought, which <laughs> maybe that happens. <laughs> yeah, we will see. Um, it also could be like, a tempest in a teapot, right? Like, you know, it could go away like, like slap bracelets and then they're just gone. Yeah. I want to finish up this conversation with uh, one more topic before we get into the closing questions. And this has to do with, and again, forgive me if I say this wrong, but Potemkin numbers and, yeah. and social proof. Again, it's one of the uh, sub stacks you wrote that I found fascinating. So I had no idea what Potemkin was. I didn't know it was a word, didn't even know it existed until I, I read the piece. So for those like myself, what what are Potemkin numbers and why are they significant? Yeah, so the name, I'm just going to read from my post since you asked this. The name is from a legend about Russian Prince Potemkin. Um, the prince wanted to convince the empress that the Crimea was a vital thriving area. So he built, quote unquote, Potemkin villages. These were elaborate facades in the shape of real villages and towns that from a distance looked real but they were fake and substantial. They were not real. So Potemkin numbers online are basically the attempts to fake a certain amount of proof, authority, trust, or legitimacy when they're not actually real. And so as a marketer, I'm very attuned to this because I see, you know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. I see people using this everywhere. Probably the most classic example would be people still do this, like follower counts on any social network. That can be gamed and is gamed with, you know, bots and fake accounts and, yep. um, yeah. And so basically, you know, follower count, like the, it's actually really embarrassing when you see an account with 200,000 people follow it and then there's zero engagement. They don't even have like any faves or likes or responses under anything. Yeah. So, but this can be a lot of different things. And the sad part is 
as much as the internet lets us um, get to answers fast with metrics, it makes it also gameable. So good numbers would be, okay, you're on Amazon, you are looking for a new pest control product to kill ants in your backyard. Don't ask, I just killed a bunch of ants in my backyard. And like the, there's a rating next to the product on Amazon. It's got a five-star rating and there's 3000 reviews. Now it'd be really hard to have 3000 fake reviews. So you yep. read through a few and the aggregate gets you to the right number, right? So numbers online help us make decisions faster. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is when we game them. So this can happen with fake followers. This can happen with, um, okay. So say a new startup puts as seen in like Forbes on their, on their homepage, right? But anyone can write an article in the contributed section of Forbes. There's no quality bar. They'll just, they'll just publish it. So it's not like that's an endorsement from Forbes, but people do things like that where they're basically, um, you know, kind of faking legitimacy. And there are some cases where people are trying to fake it till they make it and they are legitimate and they have a real product that they want to sell. But, um, you know, over time, you know, learn the things that can be fake, like follower counter engagement and, you know, make sure that you're, that you're using this to your legitimacy. And I actually think, I think like we're better at this than, probably the, the generation before us. So Brandon, when you, when you like hear about a new product or service, you'll probably Google it. You'll, you know, you'll look at what the reviews are. You'll see what media have said. You'll like look what other people have said on social. You might ask one of your friends. Um, you might like look at, um, you know, if you're as crazy as me, you'll look at even things like Google trends, like how many other people even search for this brand, right? Like, and, and you can understand pretty quickly if this is a legitimate thing and you, you and I do this, like I'm not mm -hmm. going to give my credit card to a company until I've done a little bit of diligence. So as an investor, I think like you're probably already, you know, know how to suss out numbers. And from an investment mm -hmm. perspective, that's good. Right. Cause there's, um, you know, any number of ways that companies can, can, can bullshit a little bit. Um, what was it? I saw an S one recently of a company. I'm not going to name them, but, um, it was a consumer company and they had basically come up with their own definition for CPA. CPA is cost per acquisition. And they were including in this number existing customers that had bought again. That is not CPA. CPA was is it all birds? New I'm not I'm not calling out any names. I actually don't <laughs> think it was all. But other people flagged it to me and I was like, what the hell? But um yeah, being so, so that would be like I call it digital Potemkin numbers, they're bullshit numbers. And so, you know, there are of course, you know, some cases where companies are just doing their best and don't know any better. Um, one of my investments a while ago thought it was smart to report their quarterly, um, just web traffic via Google analytics. I used to work on GA and I, I emailed the CEO of the company and I'm like, you guys should just stop doing this because no one cares. Like, and now they're creating this expectation that there has to be this much top of funnel. So what happens when they stop running ads for a quarter? Like you're just going to get like investor questions on something that doesn't matter. We don't care about top of funnel. We care about actual people who are purchasing from you. So that was actually a case, not of bullshit number, but they're just reporting the wrong numbers. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think that the, the village analogy of, of like the fake village that was built is a great one for the internet. And, um, over time, I think, you know, like 
have your skeptic hat on when you're investing or buying from a new brand until proven otherwise. And then when they paint the right store, you can take it off. And I think, you know, that trust should be built and take time and, 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 you know, not be this. The, the instant signals are to be an intro, but that's not like, it's not like instant trust. You should take a little more time to understand them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I totally agree. So, um, this has been an incredible conversation and uh, we could, we could probably go on for like another two hours, but you know, I know that I've got to let you go at some point and, and, and I gotta, I gotta go do, you know, some other, some other things. So we're going to, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, what are, what are some things maybe outside of kind of the work you're doing at Lex, maybe on, on, on your own time that, that, that you're working on that have you interested? Yeah. So one thing right now, I've actually never raised a puppy. So I've um, rescued a, I think he was like three weeks old when I got him. How awful are humans? He was found on the side of the highway outside of Austin, abandoned with uh, his brothers and sisters in a box. Like people are animals. Anyway, I'm learning to train a puppy. I have one dog, but I've never actually trained a small dog. And it's, it's great to work with um, a and, you know, a dog of a, you know, he's a proper mutt. So he's not like this overbred thing that can barely walk and breathe. And we having a dog is Lindy and training an animal is Lindy. We've been doing it forever. So working with the animal, seeing their response and they're not, you know, animals aren't robots. They actually, they have emotions, they have feelings, they have personalities and you, you learn to work with them in a way that is without language, you know, you're, I mean, there, there are some language commands, but that, that has been an interesting experience for me. I don't have kids or anything like that. So um, that has been a learning experience for me. And I think maybe I'm weird and that I'm an elder millennial and I don't have kids. I don't I actually think our birth weight rates are, are lower overall, but it's been a learning experience for me. The other thing is um, in the pandemic, I have learned to um, prepare my own food. And I used to live the city in a rush lifestyle of always having takeout, always having burritos. And to, to make your own food from scratch is not difficult. The things all of us nerds do online, if, you, if you've listened this far in the podcast, you're probably an investing or marketing nerd or tech nerd. Like you do all these, you know, you code apps, you market software, you, you know, you, you, you build opinion pieces, you do these hard things. Make your own food in the kitchen and control the ingredients, you know, Think about the source of where you get them um, here in Texas, like that you can go to a farm and get eggs that look different than the eggs you get at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know any of this. I, I've only recently opened my eyes to like sourcing food and you feel better. Even if you can't do that, even if instead of getting, you know, the, the Domino's pizza, you know, you, you go get, you know, fresh steak, fresh vegetables, you don't add a lot of, you know, extra sauces and butter, just eat like that for a little while. And like the, 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 the feedback loop and, and the positivity you get is I, I think really worth it. Um, again, you know, I'm approaching 40. I probably didn't take care of myself in my thirties as much. I was working all the time, took shortcuts for food, but I'm enjoying the process of learning, like creating food and, and, and cooking is definitely an art form. Um, mm -hmm. and the cool thing is you can't really mess up if, if, you know, you learn and you, the meal isn't that good and you iterate and you make it better next time. So it's like, there's like zero, it's like a zero risk thing to do. Yep. I love it. So where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter. Like we said earlier, uh, what are some other ways that people can reach you? Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I have a Substack. stack. Um, 
which is pretty findable. Just Google me. And um, yeah, I'm, I've done a bad job of being a quote unquote personal brand online. And that's on purpose. I was that for a number of years at a company. I actually want to go back to just being a marketer. I like being behind the scenes. Um, it's so cool to actually be on a podcast once in a while, but like, I, I don't want to be like, like a personal brand type thing. I, I actually want to work on cool products that you all see and use every day. So yeah, just say hi to me on social and, um, you know, I, I, I'm happy to engage with you. Um, I like, don't want to be like a, a, like a personality that doesn't talk to anyone. And actually Brandon's really cool about that as well. There are some, cause he is an online personality and, but he actually still talks to people. And I think that's one of the cooler things of sharing ideas online where, where you actually will talk with others. So yeah, just find me and say hi and um, always happy to talk. And um, if you have cool stuff you want me to share, uh, pass it on. Uh, people usually like the things I link. So I'm always happy to help other content creators and you know, whatever you're doing, just reach out. So yeah. Awesome. And then the last question I ask everybody, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Um, it's a great question. I think Gene Roddenberry. I'm such a Star Trek Who's fan. That? He was he, Gene Roddenberry wrote uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. And I, did he create the original Star Trek? Um, but he's... He was one of the one of the few really optimistic futurists, um, and the plots and world building that he wrote in uh, the Next Generation. There's just like rewatch that series if you haven't. It is very um, a lot of what's happening today. Like you can see they were exploring those topics, but with they the reason it was cool is they could explore topics that some people can't because they use just alien races instead of us. And so when they do it that way, it sort of disempowers you. you. You're not bringing your preconceived biases. You're looking at it from a neutral perspective. So like they would tackle po political topics. They would tackle economic topics, but they would do it in a way that was distanced enough from our own that you could view it with sort of a blank slate lens of not your biases will aren't there since they're exploring it in like another civilization. So I think like Gene seems like a cool guy. Awesome. Well, Adam, this has been a tremendous conversation. I'm so glad we got to make this work. Um, good luck with everything that you're doing. Uh, have fun in Austin. And the next time I'm down there, I'll reach out and, and we can grab a coffee and grab some barbecue. Sounds good to me. Would love to meet. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.